Did you hear that last line? They won't know unless we go. That's why we go to the neighborhood or that's why we go to the uh, nations. That's why you go to the carpool line or the Congo. That's why from day one here at Two Cities, we said, I mean, this was on all the stuff we handed out when we were starting this church. We said we are in Winston, but we are for the world. In fact, this is the type of church we are. I'm gonna give you a new word today. We are a global church, okay? That means local. Look, Look at your neighbor and say, we're global. We're global. We're a global church, okay? We are reaching. Uh, we are reaching globally, but we are rooted locally, guys. And, and I want you to hear maybe in that video the power. I know we talk about it a lot, but the power of a short-term mission trip, okay? It's a discipleship microwave for your faith. Did you hear what Haley said? She said, I mean, this is my words, but she said, I went on this trip and it amplified and accelerated the work of God in me and through me. Guys, this is exciting. Since January, we've been able to send over 150 people on a plane somewhere in the world on one of our mission trips. Isn't that amazing? Yes, yes, you can be excited about that. That doesn't include the dozens and dozens, I think about 60 people that we've sent domestically on short-term mission trips. And that doesn't include the dozens that we have set up for future mission trips. Okay, so listen, if you've been on a mission trip in the last year with us, or you're planning on going on a mission trip, stand up right now, we wanna honor you. Come on. They're in the, yeah, look at that. Oh yeah, we've got some of our missionaries in the lobby. Good to see you guys. All right, take a seat. Guys, okay. This is all part of our One Initiative, okay? So we're halfway through today, the One Initiative. Grab your One Initiative booklet, okay? Okay, now look, make sure your neighbor's got one of these. If your neighbor doesn't have one of these, look at them and then go like this. (laughs) Just just be very disappointed in them. No, yeah, go. Guys, uh, the the One Initiative is is our way to really say, listen, evangelism is a belief. Every church says, I believe in evangelism. We're saying, no, no, it's a value here. It's a big value. And we're asking people to take one risk in one relationship to bring Christ to that relationship. Guys, it's a very exciting time because God is uniquely using this series, this initiative, and we're already beginning to hear some stories. And I think today is going to help us even more as we turn to Acts 16. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, we are just grateful for a chance to see the Apostle Paul, what, what just an incredible Christian. I heard someone say recently that, he may have lived the best Christian life of any human. He was just faithful and he was fruitful. And his example, encapsulated in the book of Acts, has just been a model, a challenge, an encouragement to Christians all over the world for 2,000 years. So today, as we begin to watch his second missionary journey, and we watch him grab some people to go with him, and we watch him head into Macedonia and meet three unique people who needed to hear the gospel in three unique ways. Would you encourage us for that one person who's far from God and close to us? It might be our sister or our spouse. It might be our son. It might might be a friend or a family member. Would you continue to do something in us as we gather so that you can do something through us as we scatter? In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. All right, guys, listen. uh, Teams matter. Teammates matter, right? It's been said that a great player can win games, but it takes a great team to win championships, right? We all know the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, of course, is who I'm talking about. He was great. He was at the Chicago Bulls. You guys all remember that. And he was winning games. The problem was he couldn't win championships until these other two guys came around. Remember them? Scottie Pippen and that guy who liked to dye his hair. Dennis Rodman, remember this guy? Okay, and the three of them, together they were a team. Well, if you'll type two, turn two, swipe two, scroll two, however you get there. Okay, get to Acts chapter 16. Paul needs a new team. Paul needs some new teammates, and that's because, listen, this is okay, this happens between Christians. Sometimes Christians have disagreements, sometimes Christians fight, sometimes even the godliest people can't get along or agree, okay? 
And that's sad, but it's true. And what happens is, I won't go there right now. You can talk about this with your community group. At the end of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barney, remember, they were like best friends. They have this big fight. You read about it later. I don't have time to get into it, but basically they fight about John Mark. Because John Mark was this young guy that they brought around. And they're like, you know, Paul's like, we got to go on a second missionary journey. It's been five years. We're this, is, this missionary journey, we're going to go farther. It's going to take longer. And so we're not bringing John Mark. And Barnabas is like, come on, man. Like, I think he's changed. I think God could use him. See, Paul's thinking, what can John Mark do for God's work? And Barnabas is thinking, well, what could God's work do for John? And that's always the tension, right? But here's what happens. Uh, Barney takes John Mark, and they head somewhere else to reach another people. So actually, God even uses people's disagreements and divisions to further the message. That's just how God can work. But Paul needs a new teammate, a guy named Silas. We'll meet him in a little bit. And he's going to it, but Silas is more like a brother, and Paul liked to have brothers, and he liked to have sons in the faith. So Silas kind of replaces Barnabas, but he's looking for someone to replace John Mark. Well, here, you'll meet him. You've heard of him before if you know your Bible. Look at this. Paul also, I'm in verse 1 of chapter 16, came to Derby and Elystra. Now, in chapter 14, we didn't get to read that, okay? Sorry, that's not how I normally like to do things. We had to skip over that. In chapter 14, Paul goes to Lystra, and first he's idolized, and then he's demonized. Everybody loves him, and then everybody hates him. That's how life works sometimes. And, and he starts this church, and you go, I don't know how this church is going to go, and he has to leave because there's such terrible persecution. It's been, we, we guessed, about five years. So he comes back. He's like, what's happened to Lystra? Like, there was a couple people, and like, what happens? Okay, look here. A disciple, remember, they weren't really called Christians. Uh, they were called disciples. A disciple was there named Timothy. And then we get like a brief description of him. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So basically here, his mom is a Messianic Jew. Actually, if you read, it's either 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy. You find out his grandmother also was a Messianic Jew, so a Jew who believed in Jesus, but his dad didn't believe. Let me just, uh, a word of encouragement. You can come from a broken family and God can still use you. I mean, you know, and particularly, let me just say, this is only for some of you, but, but women especially, young moms, moms, uh, moms who find themselves as the only spiritual leader in the home through death or through divorce or through just the husband is distant and uninvolved. Listen, I mean, Timothy is one of the greatest and most godly men in the entire New Testament. He'll end up being the pastor of the church at Ephesus. He'll end up being Paul's son in the faith. He'll end up getting two letters written to him that you now have in your Bible and he comes from a broken family. Now, Paul grabs him, and later, Paul will say, I am a spiritual father to you, and you are a spiritual son. Now, that's interesting, because Paul talks a lot about discipleship, but when he gets personal, like he'll say, like, hey, we made a lot of disciples, or we we're in this city, and they made a lot of disciples, but when he talks about his own process of discipling someone, he says something like this, I became like a father to him, and he became a son, like a son to me. See, here, the problem with discipleship for many of us, okay, maybe most of us, is we tend to think of discipleship in terms of time and place, not relationship and responsibility. Like think about your community group. I hope if you're a part of our church, you're in one of those. And, and the wrong way to think about community group is, oh yeah, my community group, it meets Tuesdays from seven to nine. It's like wrong. That's a wrong way, maybe that's an initial way, maybe that's a one-on-one way to think about your group. You're thinking in terms of time and place. Oh, two hours on a one, you know, that we meet three, three out of four weeks of the month or something like that. The better way to say it is actually, no, no, no. I am in relationship with these people and I am uniquely spiritually responsible for these people. I would love a church, this would be great, if we could create a church here where everybody's walking around going, where are my spiritual sons and where are my spiritual daughters? Okay, so we get a little more about Timothy here. Look at verse two. So we're introduced to him, it says this. He was well-spoken by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him. I think it's fair to say, Timothy could have been on launch team 3.0, okay? He's all in. He's full of time, talent, treasure, circumcision. He's all four, okay? 
because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So imagine you're Timothy and Paul, the great Paul comes to you and goes, hey, listen, I choose you. All right, well, that's pretty cool. You know, because you heard of, you got a great mom and I've heard, heard great things. We're gonna travel the, the known world and we're gonna plant churches and it's gonna, I mean, we're gonna go, we're gonna meet new people. And Timothy's like, I love to travel, this is great. I'm a new Christian, but I'd love to learn from you. One other thing, Timothy. <laughs> There's a little surgery we're gonna have to perform, okay? Um, now, this is important, you know, you, you wonder, because circumcision comes up a lot and it's like, you know, obviously it's a very sensitive subject to talk about, but it's a very important subject because in Acts 15, I don't have time to get into this, you could look at it with your community group, they have this big meeting, it's called the Jerusalem Council, and the apostles come together and they're like, listen guys, you know, according to the Holy Spirit, you do not need to be circumcised to be a Christian. Because you never ask this question, but the question they asked back then is, does somebody need to become a Jew to become a Christian? And they say, no. Here's what they say. Being circumcised has zero to do with your salvation, so then why is Timothy circumcised? It's not for salvation, it's for more effective service. Here's a principle that God will often call you to sacrifice, give up, do something uncomfortable in order to make the gospel go further, faster. See, here's what Paul knew. And we, we said this again from day one here. The gospel, that's the main message of Christianity, is offensive. Therefore, nothing else should be. Guys, the message is offensive enough. You're a sinner, justly condemned under the wrath of God. You are such a horrible sinner that the only thing that God could do was send his only son to die in your place for your sins. That's how horrible your sin is. And if you don't repent, you will spend eternity underneath the wrath of God in conscious eternal torment that is called hell. It's like, well, that was clear. Yeah, okay. That, that's a very offensive message. And so Paul's like, look, the message is offensive enough, so we don't need anything else to be offensive. And see, what was gonna happen with Timothy is he was gonna, they were gonna go, here's what he does everywhere he goes. Paul, you, Paul would be the easiest person to kidnap because he does the same thing everywhere he goes, okay? Paul goes every city and he first goes to the synagogue and he's looking for Jewish contacts. And he's looking, for, he preaches the gospel in the synagogue before he goes to the market square. And what he knows is if we go into all these cities and Timothy isn't circumcised, it's going to be a distraction. It's going to be confusing. It's gonna create barriers. It's gonna... There's gonna be friction. So he says, so Timothy, godly, says, okay, fine, I'll do it. Verse four, look what happens here. And as they went on their way through the cities, this is now, they've, now the team's three, right? It's Silas, it's Timothy, it's Paul. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So they tell everything, they tell all the churches what was decided in Acts 15. Here, here's key, look at it, this is important. This is the type of church we aspire to be. And I think by God's grace, we are. Verse five, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Strengthened in the faith is depth. Increase in numbers daily is width. We would like to be a deep and wide church. We care about this so much that we've named two different series at two different times in the life of our church, deep and wide. Let me say it another way. We don't wanna be an either or church. We wanna be a both and church. We think you can reach lots of new people for Jesus and still take deeper the people that you already have here. So sometimes you'll meet deep church. Deep church is, well, we will be in the book of Galatians for the next 17 years, <laughs> right? And wide church is we will do the exact same four series, one on finances, one on family, one on habits, one on new you. And we will re rinse, repeat, reuse those three series. And we will see lots of baptisms, but you meet the people in their church years from now and they 
don't know much Bible and they haven't repented of much sin. And so we want to be a deep and wide, a both and, not an either or church. Okay, so this is the summary so far. Now up into, now it's time for Paul to go on mission. Look at verse six. It says this, and when they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, now this is interesting, and a good Bible reader should be a confused Bible reader. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So Paul, he doesn't get like, by the way, he doesn't get like a direct word this time. Hey, I want you to go to these people. So he's like, hey, listen, there's a lot of people who haven't heard about Jesus. So I'm gonna just go and here's my new teammates and we're gonna go on this new trip. And, and he's trying to figure out where God's going to lead him. And that's what you're trying to do in your life. You're trying to figure out what, who, how's God gonna lead you? In fact, the number one question that people ask is, you know, some version of what's wrong with the world and why am I suffering and why did grandma die and why do good things happen to bad people and why is there evil in the world? I mean, that is the, just so, that is, that is the most, that's all the same question I just said. It's, it's, all, it's what's called theodicy. How do you defend God in the midst of a world with so much evil and suffering? That's the number one question people ask. But they normally only ask that when something bad is happening to them or someone they love. Fair enough. The most common daily asked question by people is, what does God want me to do? Like, do I marry him or do I not? Do I take this job or do I not? Do we have another kid or do we not? Do we move? Do we buy the new home? Do we start the business? You have all of these questions. So here's what I'm encouraged by. The Apostle Paul is led not in as clear a cut a way as we might think an apostle would be led, right? Don't you think God would just be like, uh, go over here, exactly here? No, that's not what happens. The first thing he says is God leads him through saying no. What happens to you, by the way, when God says no to you? Here's what happens. God leads them and says no. Now, here's what's interesting about Paul. Paul was so eager to preach the gospel to every person that the Holy Spirit occasionally had to tell him, no, not this person. We're the exact opposite. The Holy Spirit's like, could you share the gospel with one person this year? You choose, right? <laughs> Paul's like, I'm so eager to share the gospel that I just go everywhere and then God closes the door. We don't even know how the Holy Spirit forbade them. But it happens twice. Look here. You're like, okay, so Paul, Paul takes a no and he goes in a different direction, that's fine. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, okay? Now look what happens here. But the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Okay, God can often lead people by saying no. We're always looking like, where's God saying yes? First of all, where's God saying no? And, and this, we all know this in our lives. We all can look back on our lives and we can see areas where God told us no and we're grateful now. Do you remember that girl that you thought you wanted to date in high school? and now you've seen her on Facebook and you see how she's living, and you're like, I think I dodged a bullet. <laughs> and if you married her, we're glad you're here. We're glad, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> um, guys, we all don't, can, we can never put together the math and the path of how we got to where we are. We would have never done it ourselves. Like guys, I am a pastor in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. If you would have, if an angel would have appeared to me at 13 years old in the middle of the night and said, you're going to be a pastor in Winston-Salem, I'd say, well, first of all, I'm Catholic. Second of all, where's Winston-Salem, right? <laughs> I, had, I had no idea the math or the path that God would lead me on. We never can see it through the windshield. We only see it through the rear view mirror. And just, just to encourage you, I mean, you're, we're all gonna be in, I don't know when this happens. Maybe it happens in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s or 50s. I don't know, at some point, it's different for all of us you end up realizing that you're not in control and you're not exactly where you thought you'd be. And sometimes you're surprised, you're like, well, this is better than I thought. And other times you're disappointed. Well, Paul is, is, is going, here's the encouraging thing. Whenever Paul says no, he's like, all right, that's, not, that's where the Lord doesn't want me to go. Sometimes you're not the right person 
and this isn't the right time for you to reach these people. By the way, all these areas where they go around, they end up getting to. He says they didn't go to Asia. Don't think China. This is Asia Minor under the Roman kind of understanding of Asia. And so guess what? They get there. In fact, Timothy ends up being the pastor of the biggest city in that area, Ephesus. So sometimes God just says no, or sometimes he says not now. But then he gets a vision. Look here. Verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went to Troas. Okay. Now finally he gets a little more clarity because God's guiding comes gradually. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. We don't know exactly how this happened. Is he sleeping? What is happening? A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. I don't know if you're going to get a vision, but hopefully there will be a time in your life where you get, maybe you don't get a vision like this or a vision in the night, but you get a vision of where God can use you. And it normally sounds something like this, come over here and help me. One man said, he said that, and I think it's true, he said that the call to help another person speaks to the deepest part of you. Like, right, you can think about it. If somebody that you really love, somebody that you really care about, and they say dad, or they say friend, they say, listen, man, I'm struggling with something. Or I need help. Would you help me? It's like, unless you're a hard, unless you have a massively hard heart, you're going to be like, I want to do something. By the way, notice what Paul says when he hears this vision. Verse 9, or verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul understands how do people need to be helped. They need the gospel. So he doesn't say, come over here and help us build houses for habitat for humanity. We're not against that. He doesn't say, come over here. There's lots of poor people who need food. We're not against helping. Paul, Paul cared for the least and the last and the leftovers. But the greatest way you can help somebody is by bringing them the gospel. I love, look, look at verse 10. This is, this is, maybe this will happen in your life. Verse 10, I want to read again. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, okay, look at that. By the way, this is the first time we have a we in the book of Acts. Why do we have a we? Because Luke is now with them. Luke is the author of Acts and the author of Luke. And uh, it's interesting, most, well, tradition tells us that Paul met Luke at Troas. So now Paul's going to start to go, oh, that's interesting. Maybe the reason God had us go here and here and here is because we'd pick up Luke. What was Luke's job? A physician. Paul's going to get beat up a lot. <laughs> he's going to get stoned. He's going to be in prison, right? He's going to get beaten with rods. God's like, all right, you're going to need a personal physician, Okay. The second thing is Luke, and this is interesting, Luke writes more of the New Testament than anybody else in number of amount of words. So if you add Luke and Acts together, it's more than all of Paul's letters combined. We don't have the book of Luke and the book of Acts, humanly speaking, if Paul doesn't get a couple no's, go around, pick up Luke. And, Luke, and Paul doesn't get a personal doctor. This is why I want to show you the rest of this, verse 10 again. Immediately we, so now, now it's a team of four. He's got four. It's him and it's Silas and it's Timothy and it's Luke. We sought to go to Macedonia, so immediate obedience. Look here, concluding, if you underline your Bible, you may want to underline that, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Concluding is the Greek word, which literally means putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, that's why you said no here. And that's why you said no here. And that's why we ended up in church. And that's why I got the vision. So some of you, what's gonna happen in your life, and it doesn't just happen one time, you wake up one day and you go, I got it. I put all the pieces together. That's why I struggled with that sin for so long. 
That's why our marriage was in this condition. That's why I wanted a job in Winston-Salem, but I'm actually, instead I'm in, or sorry, I wanted a job in Charlotte, but instead I'm in Winston-Salem. You, you, you're able to put the pieces together. Well, from here, they head to Macedonia, and for the rest of our time, I want to tell you this, and they're going to meet three unique individuals, okay? I'm going to tell you where we're going before we go there. They're going to meet Lydia, they're going to meet a slave girl, and they're going to meet a Philippian jailer. I mean, and they could not be any different. And God's going to start this Philippian church with these three different people. And for the rest of our time together, here, here's the big idea. Jesus is the only way, but there are many ways people come to Jesus. Jesus is the only way. We, Christians believe both of these. Jesus is the only way, but there are many ways people come to Jesus. What do we mean Jesus is the only way? Well, this is, I mean, it's the teaching of the exclusivity of Christ, that the, the door to heaven is as narrow as the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The exclusivity of Christ isn't popular today, particularly. I mean, back in the day, it's like, you know, every world religion on earth had made exclusive claims. Why is the exclusivity of Christ so difficult for people in modern America? Because we have so much choice and so many options. Just go to Walmart and try to buy toothpaste, right? You're like, okay, Colgate. Okay, what size? Okay, what flavor? Okay, what benefits will it do? Okay, it whitens and cavity. Okay, get whitened and cavity, right? It's like we have, we have so many options. I mean, how many of you, you've sat down with your husband or your wife and you've said it's like eight o'clock and you said, let's try to find a show to watch. And like two hours later, you're like, that's it. <laughs> we can't start a show at 10 o'clock, right? It's just like there was like 10,000 options for your shows. So we live in a choice where there, or we live in a time where there is so much choice when you tell people there's only one way to heaven, it's offensive until you realize how big the problem is. The problem is I'm a sinner justly condemned before God and I need someone's perfection, Jesus Christ, and I need someone to pay the punishment for me, Jesus Christ on the cross. And so this is why, you know, for me, I always viewed there being only one way to God the same way as if you're in a burning building, right? If you're in a burning building and the whole building's collapsing and you get to the bottom of the building and you see one door, you don't stand there and go, why are there not three doors in this place, right? You go, I'm so grateful there's one door. But then this is really important. Jesus is the only way, but there are many ways people come to Jesus. And I don't have time in this room, but if we just said, okay, now you, no, now you, now you, you'd be like, well, for me, it was through uh, Christian college. And someone else would say, well, actually, I had a godly mom. And someone else would say, well, personal evangelism of a friend. And someone else would say, well, someone gave me a book that I was reading. And someone else would say, well, I went to this retreat. And someone else would say, well, my coworker. And it's like, okay, well, okay. Jesus is the only way, but there are many ways to Jesus. I wanna give you the three main ways I think that we see today. Lydia is going to be a wealthy woman who comes to Christ through biblical explanation. The slave girl is going to be enslaved and addicted. She's a young girl. She's oppressed. She's in bondage. And she comes to Christ through a spiritual experience. So sometimes you need a biblical explanation. Sometimes you need a spiritual, powerful experience. And then we're going to meet the Philippian jailer. And he's just a blue-collar, hard-working guy. He don't have time to read a book. You kidding me? What does he need? He needs a godly example. So as we see these stories, I hope you'll be encouraged because as you think about your one or you think about the people in your life that are far from God close to you, some of them need an explanation. Some of them need a powerful spiritual experience and still others need to just see your godly example. Let's get started. I'll show you all of these. Verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, there's just a lot of geography going on here. Uh, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. So he's like, all right, if you're calling me to Macedonia, I'm going to the heart of the city. 
which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. So just notice, it's interesting, but I think helpful for us as we try to, now we're trying to bring this down for all of us and say, okay, the rest of this chapter is about how we reach our ones, the people far from God close to us. The first thing is Paul knew where he was called, but he didn't know to who he was called, when he was called, or how the call was gonna work out, right? So he gets to Macedonia, and if you're reading it, you're like, well, Paul, you, you got the vision, like, go. What do, you do? what do you mean you're hanging out in the city for some days? What do you mean you're walking around on the Sabbath looking for a place to pray? I think the principle is a lot of times in your life, you're gonna realize, okay, God put me in this neighborhood and I know God would like me to reach my neighbors. But then you go, but I don't know how this unfolds. I don't know which neighbors are gonna respond. I don't know when, is this gonna to happen tomorrow? Or am I gonna meet my neighbor and we're gonna have a great conversation? Is this like, how long of a game are we playing here? Is this gonna take weeks or months or years? I don't know when, I don't know where, I don't know how, I just know, or I don't know who, I don't know when, I don't know how, I just know where God's called me. Well, they go to, you see that? It says they went to the place of prayer. Now, that's interesting. It tells us something about the city of Philippi, which it tells us there's very few Jews here. How do we know that? Well, because like I told you, Paul always went to the synagogue. Here, there's not a synagogue. How do we know that? Because there's a place of prayer. They put places of prayer, places where there were no synagogues. What did you need to start a synagogue? Just 10 Jewish men who came together and said, we want a rabbi. So it partly tells you the spiritual condition of the city of Philippi that there was no, there was a, they couldn't find 10 godly Jewish men who came together and said, we wanna start a synagogue here. So they go down to the riverside, to the place of prayer, because everything starts with prayer. He says this, verse, I'm halfway through verse 13, and we sat down, here it is, and spoke to the women who had come together. So I wonder if Paul's a little confused. All right, Lord, you gave me a vision of a Macedonian man, and all I see are women. <laughs> Where am I? What's going on here? But God's gracious. Look here. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. So she owned purplegoods.com. Okay, very, very successful woman. <laughs> who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. First lady we meet is Lydia. She is wealthy. How do we know that she's wealthy? Well, she's a seller of purple goods from Thyatira. So back then, like today, part of the way we nod our status is how we dress. Today, it's a little more sophisticated. It's the logos, it's the branding. Back then, it was the colors. And so to wear purple was, I mean, that's the color of royalty. That's the color that very, you had to be, well, you had to be royal or you had to be rich to afford that color. And so if you're selling that color to other people, you are very wealthy. Lydia's also into fashion. You're like, explain this to me, Kyle. Okay, if this was today, she'd be wearing Lululemon and bringing her Stanley Cup to the prayer meeting, okay? <laughs> you're like, I get it, I get it. Yeah, that's who she is. So she shows up and in verse 13, it says that Paul and Silas and the other men they spoke the word of God to them. Now, that's very interesting because it's not the word to preach, which is what you know, I'm doing right now. It's not the word you know, to get up and to herald a message. It's the language of conversation. Now, this is interesting because I think this is really helpful for us. The way that most people are going to come to Christ are like Lydia. They're going to come to Christ through spiritual conversations with others. But here's what I bet that's true for you because I've heard enough of your stories for the last month now about trying to reach your one. And here's what I hear a lot of people say. They say something like this. Well, you know, I, in fact, this happened last week. A lady said, my son, he lives out of town. He called me. It's kind of crazy. I see God working. He came into town for just a couple days. I hadn't seen him in months, and he's my one. 
And I was like, well, how'd it go? She goes, mm, not good. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that so honest? She said, I mean, he was here for several days. We just never really had any good conversations. But that's, that's how it is, right? Here's the problem. We are trying to go from casual conversations to spiritual conversations. And sometimes it's too big of a jump. Like, here, here's the conversation we have. We, we talk about, we like to talk about sports, right? Oh, how's Wake Forest doing? That's easy. That's easy. You can talk to anybody about that, okay? Or we love to talk about the weather. How many of you have had conversations recently about the weather? Oh, I love this time in North Carolina, right? You've even made the joke, right? The, the, you, know, <laughs> you know, you don't like the weather in North Carolina? Just wait five minutes, right? <laughs> Changing all the time. You just love it. You wouldn't want to be anywhere else. You know, you're telling people how you wear a sweatshirt in the morning and a t-shirt in the afternoon and a coat at night, and you love it. Uh, it's very hard, though, to go from sports to scripture, from weather to the word of God. Here, we're missing a step. Let me give you the step. And, and someone else taught me this, and it's not easy. You have to go from spirit, or sorry, you have to go from casual to meaningful to spiritual. And it's very hard to have meaningful conversations, if we could just be honest, because we're kind of shallow, right? You can't get to Christ from talking about the office. You're like, well, you know, Michael Scott's kind of like the Holy Spirit, you know, and he's just like, <laughs> you're like, ah, it's not gonna work. Okay, it's not gonna work. But if, you, but if you can start talking to somebody, if someone's like, if you can start talking about marriage and what it's really like, if you can start talking about things that men especially don't know how to talk about, your feelings, your fears, your genuine opinions, how your kids are doing, a health crisis. See, I genuinely believe that if we can figure out how to have more meaningful conversations, from meaningful to spiritual is just a short step. The second thing I'll say about conversations I think is very helpful is you could argue that what Paul's doing right now is having a one-to-one -one Bible reading discussion with Lydia. I mean, this would be an investigative Bible study. So here's what's happening. Paul is going to an environment where there's spiritual interest, that's, that's Lydia, and he's having a, a conversation with her, I'm guessing probably about Jesus from the Old Testament. I, I think there's nothing more powerful than saying to somebody, and this isn't for everybody, I'm just trying to give us proverbial tools in our tool belt, but for some of you, you may be in a relationship with somebody who's far from God, close to you, and this may be the right next question, would you read the Bible with me? Now, in my time at Duke, I found I did college ministry there for four years. I found that the most helpful way to see the gospel go forward in another person's life was not to continually just try to have spiritual conversation with them. What normally happens is the first conversation goes well, and I'm like, all right, that's it, let's get coffee again. They're like, all right, evolution uh, versus creation. I'm like, ah, I don't really wanna talk about that. All right, I wanna hear all about Christians and politics. Ah, I don't really wanna talk about that. But when I said, hey, what if we got together just once a week and we just read one chapter of Mark? And I promise, I, I, would, you know, I would joke with him, I'm not gonna prepare beforehand. I'm gonna have zero agenda when I come to this. And actually what we're gonna do when we get together is what's called the Swedish method. This girl made this up on a college campus in Sweden. It's just light bulb, question mark, arrow. I like that because it doesn't sound academic, it doesn't sound religious, it doesn't sound intimidating. You could do this with your son. Hey, you know, son, I know you live across the country. What if we met once on the phone once a month and, or once a week and we read Mark and Lightning ball, light bulb is just what jumps out at you, and question mark is what questions do you have, and arrow is do you think you should do anything about this? And what I found is when you try to have all these spiritual conversations, it goes in every direction, but when you put the word at the center, especially if you can look at the gospels and the person and work of Jesus Christ, it goes really, really, it can begin to go somewhere. So the first thing we see is Lydia comes to Christ through a 
rational explanation of the scriptures because she's already spiritually interested. What I believe is going to happen in our new building is lots of people will show up, but the most likely person to show up is going to be Lydia. It's the Lydias in our city who have some spiritual sensitivity. Maybe they're spiritually seeking and they need somebody to have a genuine gospel conversation with them. Okay, so the first person is Lydia. The second person is the slave girl. But let, let's see how it ends first with Lydia. Here we go real quick. It says this. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She was a good businesswoman. And she prevailed upon us. In other words, she wouldn't take no for an answer. By the way, this is interesting. Her open heart led her to being a Christian. Her open home led there to being a church. So tradition tells us the church at Philippi met in Lydia's home. So that's great. They're very excited. She gives them a Stanley cup as he leaves. Verse 16 says this, and we were going to the place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl, exact opposite of Lydia, who had a spirit of divination. So she's demon influenced or demon possessed or something and brought her owners. Okay, so she's a slave. Much gained by fortune telling. So she is the exact opposite of Lydia. I mean, they're both women, but that's about it. Lydia is wealthy, successful, and older uh, and has a family. The slave girl is single and young and demon-possessed and not spiritually interested and literally enslaved other men. Uh, I think, well, maybe say it this way. If Lydia represents, and I'm oversimplifying and I'm over-stereotyping, I know, but Lydia would represent most people in Winston-Salem who are over 50. They're, they've been to church, they've been church, they might show up in a church, you know, they, they may know some Bible, they need some help. Lydia, or the slave girl represents anybody under 50. It's like, what, do they, what, is, what does the slave girl represent? All the people, and there's many of them today, especially young people, who are completely addicted, right? The biblical word for addiction is to be enslaved. They're addicted to pornography. They're addicted to drugs and alcohol. They're addicted to the approval of other people. They're anxious, stressed, depressed, and they need to be set free. And I'll show you what happens here. So, verse 17, she followed Paul, <clears throat> excuse, excuse me, imagine this. So Paul's trying to do ministry. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, is she saying anything wrong? No, why? Because she's possessed by a demon and the demons are always the only people who know who Jesus is. Do you remember this? In the gospels, his parents or his family thinks he's crazy, right? And the, the disciples are like, don't know who he is, right? And then the demons show up and they're like, you're the son of God, you know? They're the only ones who know who he is. But I love this, and this will hopefully encourage a few of you. Look at verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. And I guess at first Paul kind of put up with it, but then I love this. Paul, having become greatly annoyed. Okay, you could be annoyed for Jesus, amen, right? You're like, I love, yes, yes. You can be annoyed or bothered for, G uh, for Jesus. And here's what that means. On a serious note, it means this. We need to be more bothered and more annoyed by the spiritual condition of the people around us. You know, we really do. We need to be bothered. It's like, okay, what you do every night is watch Netflix and drink until you fall asleep. That sounds like bondage. You are anxious, you are stressed, you are depressed. You're, you're serving, you're enslaved, not to owners. You're enslaved to the American dream and you're looking forward to your extra week of vacation. Okay, that's bondage. And we wanna care about people. And, and what's interesting is Paul, if you watch carefully, he doesn't even get mad at her. Like, we can't get mad at, we're not mad at, that's not the enemy. The enemy is Satan, the satanic influences. So Paul gets greatly annoyed for Jesus. Look what he does. <clears throat> he turned and he said to the spirit, 
I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, we're not explicitly told that she became a Christian, but tradition tells us that she did, as well as it's, this is three stories in a row of people coming to Christ. The other two, it says explicitly. So we believe this young lady comes to Christ, joins the church as well, but she does not come to Christ. I said this earlier, but just to make it super clear, she does not come to Christ through an explanation. In fact, she already had all the right answers. She needed a powerful experience with the presence of God. And some of you, this is where your one is. Some of you, this is where you are, right? You know all the answers. You, you went to VBS, you went to student ministry, you did your college ministry thing, you know all the right answers, you know how to say your little prayer at dinner, you know, whatever. You know how to show up at church and go to group, but you've never had a powerful experience with God. See, I, I knew a guy, he's a pastor now, and uh, he said he had a really rebellious season in his life, but he knew all the answers. His dad was a really godly man. He said, my dad told me this later. He said, I didn't know this. He said, uh, when I'd go to school, my dad would go into my room and he would pray over my bed. And he would say, God, haunt John in his dreams. <laughs> he said, I had no idea. He said, and then what he would do is he said, he was a little charismatic. He said, he would take some oil and he would throw oil on my clothes. And he would say, Lord, clothe him in the righteousness of Christ. Take off the new old man and put on the new man. It's like, we just need, look, Here's the thing. Some people, they just need a powerful experience with God. We need to pray for it. This is why, why, you know, I'm not gonna make you do this right now, but if I said, so how many of you came to Christ at a retreat? You know, how many of you came to Christ at a camp or a conference, right? Or, you know, there were, there, and God uses different things, like, you know, through different seasons. You know, the Jesus movement. Do you know at the height of the Jesus movement, they were baptizing 1,000 people a month? It's like all these hippies out in California. And they have, this, they have this powerful experience with the gospel through Chuck Smith and the Calvary Chapel movement. So we just need to, and we're not saying we're the greatest thing ever, but what we're, what we're trying to do here on the weekends, when we get that new building, it's like, why are we building that building? It's like, because we actually believe that there is something powerful that happens when the church gathers. It's not just about getting everyone to the church, get what, but it's like there's something when people, when the people of God gather on purpose for a purpose, when they worship, when there's baptisms, when there's testimonies, when there's preaching, when there's celebration, when there's confession, God uniquely moves. Unfortunately, this is good for the or fortunately, this is good for the slave girl, not good for her owners. They get mad. Look, this isn't gonna go well for Paul. <clears throat> but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, <clears throat> they realized Paul and Silas and dragged, sorry, they seized. Paul and Silas, and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. Look at this. So a couple of people get mad, and then look what happens here. This is what always happens. This is what happens today. Look, the crowd joined in attacking them. You know the Greek word for crowd? Twitter, okay? It's exactly what happens today. The crowd joined in in attacking them. This is the mob mentality. This is the cancel culture. It's very old. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. So Paul's glad he's got Luke with him, okay? And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. And we meet the third guy who's gonna come to Christ. <clears throat> Ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So they gave them over to the jailer. Having received this order, he, this is the jailer, put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, there were three levels to a prison back then. 
There was the outer prison. You do something little, you know, stay on the outside. It's a form of house arrest. Get your son, you know, walk around, you're fine. But you're, you know, you're in prison. And then there was the normal prison, right? Like you're in prison, okay? And you did something pretty bad and we're gonna lock you up and you're behind bars. And then there was the inner prison. And the inner prison was under the regular prison. And it's where all the sewage and waste went. Yikes. And it's pitch black. And the jailer is the one who decides to put them in the worst prison. It's going to be very interesting because Paul is going to win this, lead this guy to Christ. Paul's the kind of guy that could even lead his enemies to Christ. But then it says he fastens them with stocks. What is that? It's like, well, it's these chains that they would put around your feet and ankles, and they would tie you to the wall, and they would tighten them in the most, they would, they'd get you in a really awkward, uncomfortable position to sit in, and then they would chain you there tightly. So if I'm, and I think if you were in this situation, you'd be like, God, you know, I get the whole leading me to Lydia thing. That was great. And that was really cool because she has a big house and, you know, she's very generous and that was really fun. And, and I understand the slave girl thing because I love when people are delivered and set free and healed and, and thank God for that. But like, are you sure that you led us to, Ma did I, I haven't even seen a man yet in Macedonia that's coming to Christ. Are you sure this is where you want to lead me? But look what he's doing. Look what they're doing, I should say. <coughs> verse 26, or verse 25, <coughs> excuse me. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to him. Now, I know if you and I were in prison, the kind of prayers we'd be praying, let's just be honest. Like, the, 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 you know, all the Psalms from the Old Testament that say, like, God destroy our enemies and break all their teeth and all that kind of stuff, right? Those are the, that's your memory verse in prison. Paul is, <clears throat> we don't get to know what he's praying, but he's singing something. And that's very interesting because maybe, maybe a principle is what do you do when you suffer? There's lots of things you do when you suffer, but one of the things you do when you suffer is you sing. And the reason that we sing each week, right? So, I mean, sometimes you come in here and you sing the songs and you, when you sing all the songs, you go, I believe this, I feel this, I love this, I know this, I live this. A lot of times you're gonna come in and go, I'm singing these songs because this is what I say I believe, but I don't really believe this right now. And I need to sing it with melody to remind myself this is what I believe. This is one of the reasons, by the way, we try to, Pastor Donovan's great with this, we always try to sing lots of different songs and not just happy songs, but songs that sad Christians can sing. Because, and this is why, because, you know, in our, any church, but a church our size, somebody this week got, lost their job and somebody this week got promoted, right? Somebody got engaged and someone got cancer. And it's like, that's every week. And so when we gather together, we need songs that everyone can sing. Well, they start singing. Do you see it says the prisoners are watching? You never know who's watching you worship. You never know how powerful your praise is. Their, their praise is powerful. Look what happens, verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So had the prisoners escaped, Rome was gonna kill him. So in, in a time of absolute despair, this man considers and almost takes his own life. He, this is a suicide attempt. Do you know the number one cause of death between 20-year-old and 45-year-olds, especially men, the number one cause of death? Suicide. Do you know that in the last seven years, we're still a young church, we're seven years old as a church, we have had two people take their own life in our church, one man, one woman, both very young with a very bright future ahead that none of us saw either of them going in this direction. We see this man about to commit suicide. 
And I want you to see what Paul says, because this is what the church would say to somebody who's about to commit suicide. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. If you are here today, and in a room this size, there's got to be some of you, and you're struggling with some suicidal thoughts, and here's how you know that you've gone, that you're there. If you've thought about taking your own life, and you've not only thought about taking your own life, you've thought about how you would do it. That's the definition of someone who's suicidal. Here's what we want to say. Do you see what he said there? Here's what we want to say to you. Do not harm yourself. We're here. That's what the church says. Hey, don't harm yourself. I know you're depressed, right? Listen, if you don't know what it feels like to be depressed, here's what it feels like to be depressed. Because some of you have never felt depressed. When you feel depressed, it feels like everybody in your family died yesterday. And you feel like that every day. And it's very, very painful. And so other people need to come around and say, listen, do not harm yourself. We're here. And so if that's where you are, you can, you, we can handle the fine china of your life. And if you'd give us the fine china of your life, we're going to walk with you and get you the help, hope, and healing that you need. Paul, with a loud voice, screams out, don't harm yourself. We're here. Look at the response. Verse 29. And the jailer called for lights because they were in the inner prison. It was super dark. And he rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, if, you, if God's going to use you in the life of other people, you don't need to know apologetics. That's defending the faith. And, and you don't need to be caught up in news and events and cultural analysis, although that can all be helpful. And you don't need to know every obscure passage and what it means in the Bible. But you have to be able to answer this question. When somebody says, it's the same question of how do I become a Christian? How do I be saved? How do I be saved from the wrath of God to come? Well, Paul, thankfully, has an answer. Look, he's very clear. And they said, look at verse 31. And they said, remember, he says, how do I be saved? And they said, go to church. That doesn't say that. I'm just checking. Doesn't say that. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Belief is active trust in the accomplished work of Christ. You look at what Jesus did in his sinless life, in his substitutionary death, in his victorious resurrection over Satan's sin and death, and you just say, I believe. And by the way, you don't try to believe. Some of you are trying to believe. You just believe. I transfer trust from myself to Jesus. And I believe that somehow what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross counted for me. Now, yes, is there repentance? Yes, we see that in him. The very fact that he's turning and saying, what do I need to do? I'm in the wrong. Now look how this ends. This is beautiful. Verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, so they taught him more. And to all who were in his house, and he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his, all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. How do they come? How, did, how does the blue-collar jailer come to Christ? not through a deep explanation, though he'll get an explanation. Not even through an experience, although the earthquake was an experience, but what, what, what led him to Christ was the godly example of these men. Think about it. Well, man, I put you in chains and you sing hymns and pray to God. And in the darkest hour of my life, you cried out and helped me. And when you could have left, and let's just all admit it, if the, if the earthquake happened and all the chains went off of us and the doors opened, we're out. What kept Paul in prison was not the chains, but his love for the jailer. 
And he has this powerful experience. Listen, let me just encourage you. You have no idea how powerful your godly example is in another person's life. The darker the world gets, the brighter the light shines. And you have no idea what a powerful example a godly marriage or a good family is. And let me just tell you, because I know how this works. You don't know how much your godly example is meaning or mattering until someone's life falls apart. Because they don't tell you until then. They come to you when their marriage is in shambles. And they say, I never told you this, but I've just really admired your, you and your husband's you know, marriage and we're not doing well right now and could you help us? And it's like, oh, great. My example has led for an opportunity for me to explain. Guys, we said at the beginning that there are, Jesus is the only way, but there are many ways to Jesus. Maybe another way to say this, why, why do we gather and why are we doing a whole initiative as a church? Because it takes all types of Christians to reach all types of people. And as you think about your one, I think we're gonna end just by praying that God would do those three things. Because the truth is, God does all three of those things in people's lives to bring them to Christ. For some people, I'm gonna pray that God would give you the courage this week to have a spiritual conversation and that God would give you the wisdom to know how to take conversation from being casual to meaningful to spiritual. For others, we're gonna just at the end, we're just gonna pray for whoever your one is, that one person who's far from God close to you, we're gonna pray for a powerful spiritual experience in their life that the power and the presence of God moves in their life in a mighty way. And for others of us, we're just gonna pray that God would help us in the midst of raising our own families, in the midst of all of our own sin and suffering, to be a godly example for others. Let's pray. Lord, we just wanna take a moment right now. And we, we know that Jesus, you are the only way. That's the confession of the church, that Jesus, you, you said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me but through the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me. Lord, you, uh, the, the apostles said in Acts 4.12, <clears throat> they said there is only one name under heaven by which a person can be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. But we also know there's many ways, Lord, and we're really asking. A lot of parents feel like, well, I've done my part, and they're, they're still trying, Lord, and they're just like, would you bring another person into my son or my daughter's life? And Lord, I pray just all three of those things, Lord, that you would help us to be able to really explain the gospel to people. Would you give us a gospel fluency, the ability to talk about Jesus and the cross and his life and his death and his teaching in just a normal, natural way? Would you, would you teach us how not to just have casual conversations, but to have meaningful and spiritual conversations? Would you teach us how to do that on a Zoom call or on a phone call or over coffee or over dinner, Lord? Would it start in our homes? Lord, we pray for powerful spiritual experiences, Lord, where people go from death to life, where people say truly God is in this place, where addictions are broken and marriages are reconciled and people are set free. And Lord, would you let us be godly examples, Lord? We have no idea who's watching us. And it's often not until their life falls apart that we understand how powerful of an example we are. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the word of God who came and explained to us. Lord, we thank you that you, you moved in power with miracles and healings that changed people's lives, Lord. Lord, and we thank you for your godly example. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.